Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone here to watch the select committee on January 6th hearings that start tonight and will continue over the next few weeks. I think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history. And I think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day, who was responsible, and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, also available in paperback. Stuart, welcome back. Great to be here, Reed. Thanks for asking me. So, Stuart, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon for me, uh, Wednesday night for you as you were in the land of the midnight sun, the day before the first primetime public hearing from the House Select Committee on January 6th. Later in the show, we'll talk about what we're looking to see in that first hearing. But first, I want to start with what Fox and the right wing media apparatus is doing vis-a-vis these hearings. So, Stuart, for the first time in as many years as I can remember, the January 6th hearings are going to be covered by actual networks, not their news affiliates, not their streaming affiliates, ABC, CBS, NBC, along with CNN, MSNBC. However, Fox News will not be covering the hearings. They've elected to air their standard primetime lineup, Tucker Carlson, Hannity, Laura Ingram, who've all attacked the committee's investigation on countless occasions, despite many of their text messages desperately asking Donald Trump on that day to stop what they were saying. Now, this doesn't come as any surprise, I think, to you or me, because we know that the actual reason they're refusing to cover this is, one, because it owns the libs, two, it would give them some measure of legitimacy, which they don't want to do, and lastly, it has everything to do with how afraid they are that their people will break out of the reality distortion field that they create for them. So what do you make of this and what does it tell us about where, you know, the right wing media, I don't even know if it's right wing, radical media is right now? I think it's part of this larger authoritarian world that we're living in that conservatives have become. It's no different. You call the Jewish president of Ukraine a Nazi. You just create an alternative truth. That's why Republicans now are calling anybody that they don't like pedophiles, because then if that is true, you can't negotiate. You can't negotiate with Nazis. You can't negotiate with somebody or have any sort of good faith that they're a pedophile. You can create your own truth. So it is completely consistent with this need they have to exist in a world that does not exist outside of their own world. And that ultimately goes to the way America is changing, which they can't change. So they're trying to change the rules of how people vote. And it's exactly how totalitarian governments work. You know, Stuart, also this past Monday, Tucker Carlson had Kyle Rittenhouse on his show. And most of us probably remember, but just in case, 
Kyle Rittenhouse is the young man whose mother drove him across a state line underage with an AR-15 into Minnesota, where during the course of, you know, we can call it a civil disturbance, a riot, whatever you want, he subsequently shot three people and killed two of them. He was subsequently acquitted of a, I believe, either a manslaughter or a murder charge. But Stuart, having this young man on and, and listening to what he was saying, I think it was a trifecta. One is his very appearance is, again, is an effort to own the media and to own the libs, right? Everything's about owning the libs, but also enrages people like me and maybe you, too, who understand that this man should not be held up for any sort of heroism. Secondly, he talks about the fact that this event has ruined his life. The woke media has ruined his life. He can't go to college. He can't have a normal life. The victimization piece, that's part two. But part three, and I think maybe, Stuart, the most insidious and most dangerous piece of this is as you put him up on a pedestal, as Carlson does this, it is a pretty unsubtle effort to get the viewers to impute this as a young man, when the time came, who picked up a gun and employed deadly violence to stop those people who were rioting. There's a sort of sickness here. If you go back to the Ronald Reagan era, to be born in America, you had won life's lottery. And now conservatism has become an aggrieved victimhood, like you say. You know, Tucker Carlson's show is basically dedicated to the premise that he is desperately trying to make it safe to be white in America. I mean, the idea that white people are victimized in a country where overwhelmingly those in power are white, overwhelmingly wealth is held by those who are white, is straight out of a totalitarian playbook, though. I've been reading Timothy Snyder's Unfreedom, and it absolutely goes through these stages, that you have to create these enemies. You then need a strong man to protect you from these forces. And I think also what you're seeing here is, Stu, is that we should never believe that anything that happens in this media ecosystem is by accident. So when you see them pushing the great replacement theory, which is exactly what you're talking about, they're doing it on purpose. When we had Barton Gelman on at the beginning of the year to discuss his article about January 6th, he had research from a professor at the University of Chicago who showed that the people most likely to be radicalized were not young white men, you know, without economic prospect, but in fact, guys like me, middle-aged guys in suburbs, educated, reasonably successful professionals, and they did not live in congressional districts that Trump won but congressional districts that Biden won that had seen an uptick in minority influx as far as the population was concerned. So like they are not stupid when it comes to any of this. And and I wonder from your perspective, and again, I think in your book, it was all lies. So much of this has this racial, it's not even a racial undertone anymore. Now, you know, we, we ran that ad months ago about Lee Atwater used to be able to say the N word. Now you have to call them welfare queens. Now we say critical race theory. It's all bound up in that same idea, right? Which is you have to have the other and the other must be coming to take your jobs, take your women, take your life, whatever it might be. But it's all fiction. For the most part, as you said, even in the Reagan era, if it's not quite as good as winning the, you know, the Powerball, you, know, you still won a $100,000 lottery ticket on a dollar. What is so telling about it is it is quintessentially anti-American. Because what is America if nothing but the place where you could come and become an American? and a pluralistic society that is drawn by shared values is the essence of being an American. And what they're proving just is that how frightened they are 
when that concept is carried to the point where we become a majority minority country. Seems by 2045, we'll be a minority majority country. And that terrifies them because there's always been this assumption of certain privilege that comes with being white. It's really not very complicated. It's just very, very anti-American and very ugly. Well, it is. And, you know, in 2019 and 2020, Stuart, we saw expressions of violence, whether or not it was all those men with rifles who stormed the Michigan State Capitol and were pounding on the governor's door, whether or not it was the guys in the Hawaiian shirts carrying the AR-15 sort of menacing people on the street, whether or not it was the Proud Boys, several of which have now just been charged federally with seditious conspiracy. My fear, Stuart, is that this violence, much like I think the sort of whole MAGA ethos, is getting out of the cage and it'll be very difficult for anybody to stop it. I mean, we just saw in, I believe it was in Wisconsin, a man had a hit list of people shot and killed a former judge. Governor Whitmer of Michigan was also on that hit list. Uh, Just at a campaign rally right before you and I started recording, uh, a guy named Blake Masters, who's running as a Republican for the U.S. Senate in Phoenix, an old man happened to be a Democrat, showed up at a Republican event, one of his events, in a Black Lives Matter T-shirt, and Blake Masters physically accosted the guy, grabbed him by the neck, and pushed him over. Like, that's not normal. Not in any conception of what it means to feel like, you know, American politics was the shining beacon of the world. Look, if you read The Death of Democracy, one of the stages they go through is the attack of civil structures. And that really has happened under Trump to a degree that I think we've sort of lost the scope of it just because we've almost become immune to it. So what is he attacked? He's attacked the Justice Department. He's attacked the FBI. He's attacked law enforcement. He's attacked the electoral system. He's attacked any judge who doesn't agree with him. And I think that we've learned in these years how fragile so much of democracy is and how much of it is based upon a certain shared civic bond that is difficult to legislate. It has to be a shared value, which, you know, if you remember for conservatives, used to always say that culture counts. And that has been completely lost here. The culture of not demonizing your opponent, being willing to lose, all these things that in our life we were taught overwhelmingly by teachers, coaches, Boy Scout, Girl Scout leaders, the people that we looked up to. There was a civil compact that implied a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to admit mistakes, a willingness to hear the other person, a willingness to disagree without hatred. And all of that is being wrung from the system by what used to be the conservative movement. I want to drill down a little bit into, again, why the Fox ecosystem feels the need to do this. And I touched on it a little bit at the top, and you can also read more of my thoughts at lincolnproject.us on a post I just put up today, is that they need to keep their people in the matrix, for lack of a better way to put it. They can't allow reality or the outside world to intrude. We saw what happened with Trump in 2020 with COVID, right? He was unable to accept it. And rather than being the leader the country needed, he doubled and tripled down on it being the China virus. You know, it's the Democrats' fault. We saw that earlier this year with Russia and Ukraine, right? Tucker Carlson, J.D. Vance, who's running for Senate in Ohio, and a bunch of other otherwise 
we would consider conservative Americans now doubling down on the and tripling down on the Putin side of the aisle as they attack a peaceful democracy. And the reason why I think it's so important, Stuart, that the major broadcast networks are covering this is because there are going to be some Fox viewers who do tune in because they want to see. I think there are going to be a small but I think important sliver of the country who has sort of not had this on their radar screen, but will tune in to see what happens. And I think that those people could make the difference between this being a failed coup, which is a dry run for the next one, and people saying, wait, 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 wait. I haven't really paid attention to this since January 6th of last year, but oh my gosh, look what they did. I'll give you a fascinating analogy here. You know, I grew up in Mississippi in the bad old days. The largest television station in Mississippi, which was owned by a family who owned most of the newspapers in Mississippi, refused to cover the March on Washington. It was as if it did not happen. And it is the only television station that had its license revoked by the FCC for racism. And it was the exact same instinct that if we don't show this, it's not happening. Of course, it doesn't change reality. And how clear cut could it be an attack on the Capitol? Where, which side of law and order are you on? The side of the cops or the side of those who are attacking? Somehow this law and order party we used to belong to has become a really a radical revolutionary party. Well, look, I think, you know, they use that expression back the blue. But the truth is, when the time came on January 6th, they stabbed the blue in the back. They did not stand with law enforcement, whether or not that was the Capitol Police, the FBI, Metro D.C. Police. Ultimately, the National Guard had to come in. And we even see now leaked memos from, you know, right up to that day, Stuart, which I think the January 6th committee will piece together, where the acting secretary of defense said under his own signature, the D.C. National Guard will not be deployed without my personal permission. Now, why would the secretary, the acting secretary of defense issue a memo like that if they thought nothing was going to happen? It's just extraordinary. And of course, you know, when you look at what McCarthy said afterwards, immediately, when you look at what McConnell said immediately, they spoke the truth in those moments. It was revulsion. Yet they sort of like the moment with Access Hollywood tape when it was immediate revulsion and saying, we're never going to vote for this guy to we're going to vote for him. I don't know any other word for it except it's evil in our presence. Because if you can't call this out and act on it, why are you in office if you can't defend your own colleagues? This is workplace violence. This is where they work. And people came in and tried to kill their colleagues, but they don't want it investigated or people held responsible. Well, and you also know a man you worked for for many years, Senator Mitt Romney from my home state of Utah. But for Eugene Goodman, Officer Eugene Goodman, Senator Romney might not be with us today, right? Told him, turn around. I, I got to distract these guys. Get out of here. As you've said previously, which I think is one of the greatest lines to describe Mitch McConnell, he woke up on January 5th, the majority leader, and he woke up on January 6th, the minority leader running for his life. He votes against impeaching Donald Trump for these actions. And then 13 minutes later says he was distinctly and individually responsible for them. Now, I know that Mitch McConnell has no red line, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised by that. But I guess, Stuart, it's also you talk about McCarthy, you talk about all of these other people. But you saw, too, now where this is also a purity test. Fox and the radical media will roll out all these people, all these leaders, all these Republican elected officials, all these talking heads for the purity test. Remember what happened to Ted Cruz? 
five months ago, right, when he had the audacity to say that January 6th was a violent riot, Tucker Carlson calls him on the carpet for saying that. Cruz comes on, tries to defuse it the next night, and Carlson just takes him apart limb from limb as Cruz is sitting there trying to, you know, debase himself as much as he can to win back Tucker's favor, and he can't do it. It's almost as if somebody could call his wife ugly and he would think that's fine and beg for that person's endorsement. <laughs> you know, we just had this amazing moment in the Republican Senate primary. The Philadelphia Inquirer wanted to do an old school newspaper thing and endorse a candidate in the Democratic primary, endorse a candidate in the Republican primary, because one of those two people is going to be the next senator. They couldn't endorse in the Republican primary because none of the Republican candidates would return a simple questionnaire. They said it was biased. The major point of contention was the question, do you believe Joe Biden is a legally elected president? In the place where democracy was literally created, no one was willing to say that Joe Biden was a legally elected president. And Stuart, you've just made, I think, an excellent point as poetically as you always do, right? Which is, when the Republicans are saying it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, this is a distraction, it's about gas prices, it's about inflation. No, you just hit the nail on the head. In fact, I think you said this a year ago, which was you will not see a Republican who wants to be nominated to state, local or federal office say that the 2020 election was free and fair and that Joe Biden is the president. And so why does it matter? Because to your point about Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee for governor there, was at the Capitol on January 6th. He crossed police barricades. He knew, as a guy who touts his 30 years of service in the, in the United States Army, right, among his greatest attributes, he knew he was someplace he wasn't supposed to be doing something he wasn't supposed to do, and yet he will hold himself up as the law and order candidate, the defender of freedom, Right. This is the guy who's going to make every Pennsylvanian re-register to vote every two years. He's going to rip out the polling places and the ballot boxes, you know, when he gets to appoint a secretary of state. So this fiction that they all believe that they all stand on the shoulders of George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson could not be more ridiculous. In fact, they stand on the shoulders of, of Jefferson Davis. You know, what I don't understand is you look at a guy like Oz, you look at a guy, the hedge fund guy, Dave McCormick. I mean, these are intelligent, well-educated, successful human beings who are not crazy. And what is it about the Republican Party that has drawn these people to enter it, knowing that the bottom line of entry is personal humiliation? You are entering a process by which you cannot advance unless you are willing to humiliate yourself and say things that you know are not true. And, I mean, you look at these guys, look at McCormick. So he spent millions and millions of dollars, which he has, and he lost to Oz. He could have been the guy, at least, who fought for something. I could not draw a stronger contrast to 1994, when Tom Ridge was a congressman from Erie running for Republican nomination for governor. He started out fifth in a field of five. About 10 days before the Republican primary, the assault weapons ban vote came up in Congress. And I remember vividly being on the phone with pollster Bill McIntyre for Public Opinion Strategies, who you know well. And 
Bill doing his job said, Congressman, every bit of data we have says that if you vote for the assault weapons ban, you're going to lose the Republican primary. And Rick said, quote, unquote, fuck it. I was a prosecutor. I saw what these guns did. If I lose, I lose. I'm voting for it. Well, he was also a Vietnam veteran, you know, a member of the 173rd Airborne Brigade, had seen combat, right? I believe Purple Heart recipient, too. And John McCain, you know, I think I related this story, too. In 2007, during his campaign, when he and Teddy Kennedy and George W. Bush were within an inch of getting comprehensive immigration reform done and people were saying the same things, he said, every time I've done something for purely political purposes, it's blown up in my face. If it costs me the campaign and we get it done, it costs me the campaign and we get it done. But those days are gone. Look, there are terrible people in both parties. There are terrible people in politics. But there is something about the Republican Party that has attracted of this generation, of this era, a particularly weak, character-test-failing breed of candidate. And it is rewarding those who are most willing to debase themselves. I think we're going to look back at this era and it's going to be studied and it's going to be what happened to these people. We also should say, though, that it does not occur in a vacuum. There's not one external factor. There's not one internal factor. There's probably innumerable things that at any moment, right, just like when they do the anatomy of like a plane crash or something, Stuart, like if there's 250 things that happened up until the moment when the plane lost control and if number 68 hadn't happened, the chain of accident would have stopped. Unfortunately, now we're in the middle of trying to figure out how we don't get to number 250. But the path towards the dark side, and I will invoke some Star Wars here, seems to be accelerating. I think as silly as and oversimplified maybe as George Lucas's light side, dark side thing is, Stuart, the dark side was always the easier path. It required anger, resentment, hate, fear. And that's what these things are, right? But it's quicker. It rewards the bad. It's Elise Stefanik. She knows. J.D. Vance knows. Dave McCormick knows. Dr. Oz knows. Kevin McCarthy knows. They all know better. Right now, there are the true crazies, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and those people. But these are the cynics. Right. And we cannot allow their cynicism, which is overwhelming and overarching to infect us with cynicism, because as soon as that happens, you wake up in the morning and go, what the hell does it matter anyway? But before we get out of here, Stu, just want to get a quick take from you. So as people are listening to this, that'll be a few hours away from the January 6th committee hearing. It's going to be eight o'clock. Eastern Time, Thursday night, June the 9th. Give us your sense of what you think you're going to see. I think what we're going to see in the 1-6 hearings is a very powerful presentation. I think the presentation in the impeachment trials, particularly the second impeachment trial, was very powerful. I think they're going to tell a story. And there is a lot about this that we suspect, but we don't know. We haven't read all these text messages. We haven't put together what journalists would call a TikTok of what actually happened. They will do that, and it will be impossible to deny that there was an attempt to end the American experiment. Now, what will that mean? I think the best we can hope for is exactly what you said at the beginning of this, that politics is usually a game of small numbers and that there will be enough people who will be affected by it who vote accordingly and not to reward these people. Because so far, I don't know anyone who supported the coup who has paid a price in the Republican Party. 57% of the House voted not to certify. 
I don't see any reason why 2025, that's not going to be 75% unless we beat these people. I think you're right. I think that, you know, the Democrats brought in a very well thought of, I guess, ABC News producer to help them basically make this TV friendly. I think that's smart. As I understand it, there are hundreds of pro-democracy and democratic activists somewhere in the D.C. orbit, Stuart, that are getting ready to push back forcefully on all of the misinformation, disinformation, quote unquote, counter programming. But I think that it is important if you have the time, watch it. If you don't have the time, DVR it. Tell your friends about it. Show them this. As, as we have said before, and I know sometimes it sounds like we're broken records, but all of the things you worry about in this country, in your life, in your family's lives, none of it happens without a democratic system. None of it happens. As soon as authoritarians take over, you are a subject and you are subject to their whims, just like the Russians are with Putin, just like the Hungarians are with Orban, just like the Turks are. You become an abstraction to them, not a real living person who has all of the rights that we have probably taken for granted. All right, Stuart, with my lecture over, where can our folks find you online? I am on Twitter, God help us, uh, Stuart B. Stevens. You'll find me in that hellscape. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Again, please take a few minutes to read my latest at lincolnproject.us about why Fox and the radical media is doing what it's doing. Stuart, I want to thank you again for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.